The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., 10.30 a.m., or 12 p.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. The Marlins are making a good push for the postseason. They're looking good for the playoffs. Any Marlins fans out there? All right, good. We are Marlins fans here at West Pines. Um, And there's another team as well. We're excited about this. There's another team as well that is also looking pretty good for the playoffs. Um, It's the Chicago Cubs. And if there is a point in the postseason where the Cubs and the Marlins play each other in a series, there will be a name that resurfaces, an individual's name that inevitably will resurface even though the event linked to this individual is more than 12 years old now. And it goes all the way back to the postseason in 2003. It was the National League Championship Series, and it was the Cubs versus the Marlins. Now, to understand the gravity of this championship game, championship series, is that the Cubs have the worst uh, World Series drought of any other team in Major League Baseball. They haven't been to the World Series since 1945. Someone's just laughing at them when I say that. Just no compassion whatsoever. Um, the Cubs haven't won a World Series since 1908. Is the last time they won a World Series. So any time that the Cubs get close to the World Series, Chicago, who are, they're just in ferocious Cubs fans. I mean, they're just beside themselves, okay? So 2003, the Cubs go deep into the playoffs. They're in the National League Championship Series against our Marlins, and it gets down to game six. The Cubs are, are up. They just just have to win this game six. The game is going well. It's the top of the eighth. They're, the Cubs are leading three to zero over the Marlins. They already have one out in the top of the eighth. They only need five more outs, and they will go to the World Series for the first time since 1945. The Marlins hit a fly ball out. It looks like it's going to be a, a foul ball. It's going to end up in the stands, but the Cubs outfielder, Moises Aluth is going to make a play on it. And he's running over to the very edge of the stands. He leaps with perfect timing, reaching his glove into the stands, and a moment that no Cubs fan will ever forget took place. Maybe you remember this picture right here. A couple fans instinctively, it's a foul ball, you're at a baseball game, they just instinctively reach out to try and catch it. And the ball would have fallen perfectly in Moises Alou's hands, getting them one more out closer to the World Series. But one fan in particular, it landed right in his hands, disrupting it and not giving the Cubs the out. Now you say, well, what's the big deal? It was one foul ball. Well, unfortunately for the Cubs, fortunately for us and our Marlins, is the Cubs went on to score eight runs that inning, one game six, forcing a game seven, and then one game seven, the Marlins go to the World Series. The Cubs, their drought continues on. Now here's what took place at Wrigley Field that night as the Marlins keep scoring runs and scoring runs and scoring runs. The camera keeps going to this one fan. 
who just made this one, I mean, instinctively reached out to grab the ball, kept going back to this one fan, they get angrier and angrier. They're serious about their Cubs baseball. It gets so bad at, that sta- at the uh, Wrigley Field, they have to escort the man out of, of the stadium. Okay? It be, then becomes, this man, his name goes viral through the sports world. Even today, Bleacher Report lists him as the number one most infamous fan in all of the sports world. He began receiving death threats. He, he actually, um, the governor, got so bad, the governor of Illinois recommended seriously that he go into witness protection. At that time, the governor of Florida, then Jeb Bush, he actually offered asylum to the man in Florida. <laughs> and this poor man has been trying to stay in hiding for all these years. He just wants to be left alone. He's been offered thousands of dollars if he'll take an interview. He refuses. One uh, person, uh, one, one company offered him into the six figures if he'll appear in one of their Super Bowl ads. He declined. And then even, uh, this blew my mind, a playwright wanted to write a Broadway play about him. Can you imagine? What would that show be? That would be the worst show in history, okay? I can't even imagine what kind of songs they would sing. Anyway, wanted to do a, a Broadway show about him, and he declined. Now, some of you may remember the name of this poor, infamous fan. Anyone remember? Bartman, Steve Bartman, a household name to this day in Chicago. There were even Halloween costumes you could buy to dress up like this poor man. Now think about this guy. One moment in his life. I mean, no one knows anything else about this guy unless it's some crazy stalker that's sending him a death threat. Okay, this poor guy, he's just trying to live a normal life. He loves his Cubs. He just happened to go to a stadium, happened to do what several other fans did on just what seemed like an innocent foul ball. One mistake goes down in infamy. Now, see, this is such an extreme example. He's the only thing the world knows about this guy But it's one thing that really defined him, defines him by the world's eyes. That's so extreme, but that same concept is actually a a common phenomenon in every one of our lives. There's moments in our lives, especially the mistakes, the things that we do that we regret, we wish we didn't do, We wish we didn't have that attribute about us. We wish that hadn't happened to us. There's sometimes this infamous moment or infamous infamous attribute about our lives. And maybe it's not so public. Maybe it's very private. But it's something then we carry around with us all of our lives. It's there in the back of our minds. We carry it like a weight, a moment in our life or a series of moments in our lives that has somehow taken root and defines who we are. And no matter who we are in our life, we have these types of things in our life, these things that have been seeded into our life, and what's grown out of it is our identity. And we spend most of our lives trying to prove to ourselves that that's not who we are so often. Now, the encounter we're talking about with Jesus is an encounter of two individuals that speak into this idea of where we find our identity. If you would open uh, open up with me to Luke chapter 8, this is um, Luke writes a biography about Jesus. 
And there's several biographies about Jesus. We call them Gospels. There's books like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke is the one we're going to look at today. It tells this story about Jesus. It's a true story. He, he says in the beginning, look, I'm just writing a historical account. I talked to eyewitnesses. This is a historical account about Jesus. So this is a, um, something that many people witnessed that Luke wrote down. And this is a really interesting story. And to be honest, it's a, it's a rich story and it's a heavy story. There's a lot of heavy emotions in this story. We're looking at Luke chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 40. Here's what it says. Now when Jesus returned, where is he returning to? He's returning to this town called Capernaum where he spent a lot of time during his ministry. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue and falling at Jesus' feet... He implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. All right, here's the, here's the beginning of the story. Jesus returns to Capernaum. The crowd's waiting for him. And in this crowd is this guy named Jairus. Now we know, first of all, it's interesting that it gives us his actual name. Oftentimes it's a, a, a blind man approached Jesus or this, a person approached Jesus and was suffering with this. But we actually get this man's name. His name is Jairus. And it may be because he was a pretty well-known person in that town. It's not a very big town. And we know what his role was. He was the ruler of the synagogue. Now, to enter into this small town, we might think, oh, okay, well, there's probably a couple different synagogues that someone could choose which one to go to. That's not really the way it worked in this time period. There was one synagogue. That was the place where anyone would go to worship. There was one synagogue there in Capernaum, and he was the ruler of it. In other words, he was the leader there. He's the one that oversaw what happened when they gathered to worship and made sure everything went orderly. So if the synagogue is the center of their religious expression as a town, he is the leader of that. He is a prominent leader in this community. He would be a very well-known person. Now I want you to think about this moment. There's this whole crowd waiting. I mean, they're just standing. He probably, it sounds like Jesus is coming back on a fishing boat across the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum's right there on, on the edge of, of the Sea of Galilee. He comes off on this boat. The crowd's already there on the shore waiting for him. Jesus gets off the boat and a man, a prominent man, they all knew him. They all knew his name. They all respected him. He's one of the main prominent people in the town, pushes his way through and throws himself down at Jesus' feet. Now, maybe we're kind of used to seeing these kind of stories, or maybe you've heard other stories like this with Jesus. But let's not skip over that. That's that's kind of a remarkable thing. I mean, when was the last time you saw a grown man throw himself on it, or anyone for that matter, throw themselves on their face in the dust begging for something? I mean, that's not a sight you forget. And this isn't any man. This isn't any person. This is a prominent figure in their community. They must have been shocked, maybe gasped, unless they knew the reason he's throwing himself at Jesus' feet. This town leader, he comes, the ruler of the synagogue, throws himself at Jesus' feet. I mean, hands and knees, face in the dust, pleading with Jesus, please come back to my house. I have one child. 
A little girl, she's 12 years old, and she's on her deathbed. Please, can you come and heal her? And Jesus agrees, and the crowd starts moving, and it says a crowd was packed. They're pushing through these small streets in this little town. They're all pushed together. And on the way to Jairus' house, something else happens. Look what happens next. Verse 43. And there's a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. So Luke's saying, all right, he's on his way to Jairus' house. The crowd's pressing in. I mean, everyone's kind of smushed together, bumping into each other. And he says, but there's someone else in the crowd. This crowd's falling, but there's another person you've got to know about. It says, there's this woman And she had been suffering. She had been suffering from a flow of blood for 12 years. What it's describing here is a disorder that that still some suffer with today that can be treated today, but it's perpetual menstruation. This is a a very delicate issue that she's struggling with. She has been bleeding for 12 years. She's been struggling with this, which means uh, for someone who's, who's suffering this disorder, she is living with perpetual anemia from loss of blood. She's weak. Maybe her extremities are feeling tingly. She stands up and she gets lightheaded so easily. She can't move without being fatigued. She can probably there's some days she can barely concentrate. She's just so lethargic and out of energy. She's suffered this not for a couple months, not for a couple years, for 12 years she's been suffering. Now here's what Luke tells us, which is interestingly Luke is a physician, the one who's writing this is a doctor. He says, she's spent all of her money on doctors. She's not only been suffering for 12 years, she's broke. She spent all that she has. She's out of money. And it says, and no one's been able to heal her. Now, it's interesting, in one of the other biographies written that shares the same story, Mark shares another nuance to this story. It says, and she had suffered greatly at the hands of these physicians. Now, I want you to think about this. There are some studies that say doctors did more harm than good until about 1930. That's a scary thought. So I want you to think that how delicate this particular issue is and that she is being subject to primitive medical practices from 2,000 years ago and Mark says she suffered greatly. Like, let me give you an example. In um, the Babylonian Talmud, there's a description of, of what doctors are supposed to prescribe, an ancient prescription for this exact disorder and here's the prescription the doctors would prescribe. Find a mule, a white mule, get some of its dung, pick through the dung until you find bits of barley, and then have the woman eat it. And depending on how she digests it will depend depend on whether she gets well and how well she, she gets. Now, if you've ever been tempted to complain about modern doctors, okay... That's bad, all right? And if a modern doctor ever prescribes that to you, consider a new doctor. I'm just tossing it, just free advice here, okay? So this woman, 
She suffered from under these doctors. I mean, this is a, a terrible situation. She's suffering. She spent all her money on doctors. She's, got, she's not gotten better. And the prescription she's got has caused her to suffer pro- possibly even more. And that's not the worst of it. The worst of it for this, for this woman is that by law, because of what's happening with her body, she is declared unclean. And anyone who touches her, touches her, car, her garment, touches chairs she sat in, beds she's laid in, touches her, or almost anything around her, anyone who touches her, they become unclean, and they also have to separate themselves from society. So this woman has lived with all this pain, has no money, has no hope, suffered under these doctors, and has been in total isolation for the last 12 years. What does she do for 12 years? The debate, what does she do when someone accidentally brushes by her? Does she have the humiliation of telling them? How does she handle this? What would it be like for 12 years to not have any physical touch from anyone or anyone that you love? Never have an embrace your children or a friend. Never be kissed by your spouse. Never have a warm handshake by a stranger. You've had no physical, meaningful physical contact from anyone for 12 years. She doesn't go into crowds. She can't risk it. She probably doesn't go to the synagogue and may not be allowed to go to the synagogue. She's been completely isolated for 12 years. And this woman has dared to enter this crowd. Look what happens. Verse 44. She came up behind him, meaning Jesus, and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Can you imagine this moment? 12 years in the shadows, suffering, out of options, hopeless. She finally builds up the courage, pushes through the crowd, and says, if I could just, I'm not going to stop him. I can't even face him. He may not even want to help me, and I don't want to touch him, or at least let, not let him know that I touched him, so I'm just going to touch the fringe of his garment. But maybe, I mean, maybe if I just touch the fringe of his garment, maybe that will do something for me, because I have nothing left. And she pushes through, and, and maybe the first time she tries to reach for him, and someone bumps her arm out of the way, and they turn the corner, and she gets pushed aside, she has to push her way back through the crowd and she just reaches in and tries to grab and her hand finally brushes the hem of his garment and all of a sudden she feels something surge through her body and she knows and she, I wonder if she just stopped as people kept pushing through and bumping her out of the way but she's in her own world I mean imagine 12 years consumed by this infirmity 12 years isolated in pain 12 years alone and in one moment all of her agony has been resolved fixed redeemed it's all stopped she's been made well do you wonder if she's just in this Quiet moment, I mean, didn't even realize the people bustling by, this quiet moment of just unbelievable joy and relief and gratitude as Jesus brushed by. But the story doesn't end there. Let's keep going. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? 
When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Imagine this. She's in her own little world. Just She can't believe that it happened. She can't believe that it worked. She just All she had was just a shred of faith working herself through the crowd. She probably wasn't supposed to be in anyway. And she probably shouldn't be touching his clothes or anyone to make them unclean. But she reaches out. She touches him. And she knows. And in her own private moment, is all of a sudden, she's shattered back into reality when she hears him say, Who was that? Who touched me? And everyone's just saying, I, I, it wasn't me. I don't know. And all are denying it. And everyone's quiet. Maybe everyone's taking a step back from Jesus and they're all looking around. And, and there's this awkward moment as Jesus is just scanning the crowd, trying to make eye contact with someone and figure out what just happened. And finally, Peter just steps forward and, and says, Jesus, I mean, this is a crowd here. I mean, everyone's bumping into you. I, I'm sure it was nothing. I mean, everyone bumped into you. I, it, was, it was nothing in particular. And he says, no, no, no. Something just happened. Power just surged out for me. Now how this all works with Jesus being God and man and does he really not know and and does he not control the power? They go, who could understand how this works? But Jesus is asking this question, who was that? And the woman is standing, maybe she tried to take a step back but there's people all around and she can and finally trembling, eyes brimming with tears, she runs to Jesus and and in front of everyone she falls down on her face, hands and knees, face in the dust before Jesus and she says, and she admits before everyone something in this small town probably they already knew. She says, I've had this, this, this infirmity all of, of the last 12 years and I've suffered and nothing has worked and I just thought, Jesus, I just thought if I could touch the hem of your garment, just the very fringe, if I could just touch that, it would heal me. And, and I did and then I was immediately healed. And people are maybe backing up realizing she just touched me. I'm unclean now. And they're waiting to see what Jesus is going to say. She had the audacity to intentionally touch his clothes. What is Jesus going to say? And he looks down with all the tenderness that we can only imagine. And Jesus says, daughter, my precious child, my daughter, your faith made you well. Go in peace. Go in, in wholeness and wellness. The broken pieces put back together. Let life be injected back into your world. Go in peace. What an incredible moment. But here's what happens next. That moment is interrupted by another part of the story. Let's keep going. We're looking at verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus on hearing this answered him, do not fear, only believe and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him knowing that she was dead. 
And taking her by the hand, he called saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned. And she got up at once and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Jesus continues on with with this man. The woman stops him. She gets healed. He's in the middle of talking to this woman. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. He's in the middle of talking to this woman. And he doesn't even get the words out. And people come bustling up. They find Jairus. And everyone's looking to see what happens. And they say, Jairus, she's gone. Don't bother the teacher anymore. And just as sorrow must have been overwhelming this man at the loss of his daughter, his, his only child, his sweet little girl, just as sorrow is overwhelming him, Jesus interrupts and says, don't be afraid. Just believe and she'll be made well. They continue on to the house. They get there and on the outside, there's people are, are weeping and they're mourning. They're probably professional mourners is what they would do in this culture. And Jesus says, stop, she's just, she's not dead, she's sleeping. And their mourning turns to mockery of Jesus. He says, I need everybody out. And everyone clears out the house and it's just Peter, John, and James and then the two parents and Jesus, the six of them go into the house and they go into that room where this 12-year-old lay. And the room was too quiet. And Jesus reaches down and he touches her hand, the hand of this girl who lay dead. And he says words that they will never forget. He says, child, arise. In fact, these words were so memorable that Mark, the other biography, he even remembers the words he says in Aramaic and he preserves them for all of history. Talitha kumi. Remembers these words, those words that in in the minds of Peter and John and James and these two parents and maybe this little girl's mind will be seared for all time because of what they witnessed. Talitha kumi, child, arise. And all of a sudden she breathed in and she sits up. And she's well. Now, can you put your, yourself in the position of those parents? Can you imagine what they felt when their greatest horror turned into what their greatest hopes couldn't even dream? Man, what a, what a day. What a couple hours following Jesus. Two people that are absolutely hopeless. This woman and this man and Jesus takes their hope. Jesus brings redemption into this situation. See, here's what's interesting about this story. Luke takes this true story, but he draws out some truths out of the story that show the uncanny similarities, some interesting similarities to these stories. First of all, did you notice that both of them include an interval of 12 years? First, you have the woman, she's been ailing for 12 years and you have this man's daughter who's 12 years old. See, here's what's happened. These two families, this woman and this man, their paths went in opposite directions 12 years ago. 12 years ago, they lived in the same village, but this woman contracted some kind of infirmity that would lead her into pain, lead her into suffering, lead her to be broke, lead her to be completely ostracized from her community and alone 12 years ago. 
12 years ago, this man was given the gift that they had been hoping for and praying for. They wanted a child, and they received their only child. 12 years ago, the, the apple of their eye, this precious little girl, and their life was on the right track. I mean, he became, he became someone who was known in the community, the ruler of the synagogue. And you have these two people going in absolute opposite directions, one coming to prominence, one going to isolation. You have one becoming the ruler of the synagogue, one who is not even allowed to step foot in the synagogue. And you have Luke saying, no, look at, look at these two stories together. In fact, he even weaves in this word daughter. It's this man's daughter is suffering, and then Jesus looks to this suffering woman, and what does he call her? Daughter. He's saying, take a second and look at these stories. They could not be more polar opposite in this community. The one who is the outsider and the one who's the insider. The one who's at the top of everything, the one who's at the bottom of everything. And in one span of maybe less than an hour, those two lives intersect with the same action. They find themselves throwing themselves down into the dust, desperate for before Jesus. Opposite people, both with their faces in the dust. Both throwing their, their dignity out the window, breaking all decorum, doing, making a spectacle of themselves in their desperation, throwing themselves at his feet, clinging to his feet in utter desperation. And you have the story, two people on their feet, I mean, off their feet, on their knees at the feet of Jesus. But the whole story crescendos with two final words from Jesus. Child, arise. Talitha, kumi. And the story is looking at, remember the Bible is like a mirror. It shows us ourselves. And here's what this story is sharing. It doesn't matter what the path of your life has been. You may feel like Jairus. You may feel like this woman. Interesting, isn't it, that we know Jairus' name, the prominent figure, but we don't know the woman's name, the unknown one. You may feel prominent, you may feel unknown. You may feel like an insider, you may feel like an outsider. You may feel like everything is falling apart, you may feel like everything is happening, but at some point in your life, public or private, every one of us has something that that strips away our dignity, brings us down with our faces to the dust in desperation. Every one of us has that thing in our lives, in our past, something that's ongoing, a struggle, a hurt, a wound in our lives that bring us to the point of desperation. But if we will only bring this before Jesus, what words will we hear? Talitha, kumi. He picks us, out, picks us up from the dust and restores our dignity. What's your 12-year issue? What's that thing, public or private? You say, man, that one thing, I'm so desperate. It's that one thing I'm carrying. It's that one event from my life that has defined my life. It's that one hurt, that wound I was dealt. It was words that were said to me when I was so young, figuring out who I was. It was the words from my parents or words from someone I trusted or words from a friend that told me, this is who you are. You're, you're worthless. You're, you're, you're disappointment. And those are words that have, that have cemented in my life and they've become part of my identity that I'm trying to prove that that's not true. 
What event, what, what hurt, what abuse, what abandonment happened at one point in my life that has been so catalytic that I've been running from it ever since, carrying this one thing in isolation that's bringing me down continually in the dust? What's that one moment? That one moment where I did something that I've regretted every day for the rest of my life that I can't get past seeing this one thing and I'm starting to define myself by it. You know, that, that's the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is when I understand and regret what I did and I feel the weight of it, but shame is when it becomes my identity. I can feel guilt that I lied, but shame is when I start to say, I'm a liar. That's who I am. Is there a shame that you're carrying this thing? I I did, I wish I hadn't done, but that's who I am and you're still carrying those chains around. Is it something that's happened circumstantially, something you cry out to God alone and you're like, this is weighing me down. When am I gonna be freed from this? When are you gonna answer my prayers? You say, I am the one isolated in the shadows alone, calling out to God, I'm desperate, I'm out of options. What is that thing that's stripping my dignity down to shame and bringing me down into the dust. Can you bring that before Jesus today? Because here are the words you're going to hear. Talitha, kumi, my child, arise. My child, no more. You're not to be in the dust any longer. It's, it's over. It's past. It's done. It's time to rise up. It's time to leave that behind. Leave that in the past. It's time. Rise up from that. Maybe this morning it's that moment you say, how does Jesus have that power to do that? Because when we look at Jesus and when we say what Jesus told Jairus, he said, if you believe, when we say that, when we say, I believe in Jesus, do you realize what we're saying? So when I say, I believe that Jesus, he died on the cross, he suffered, he bled, and he died. He suffered an agony on the cross. And he died, but he rose again from the dead. When I say, Jesus, I believe you died on the cross to wash away my sins. You realize when I say I believe in Jesus, I believe. I am saying I believe something about myself as well. See, so often when we look, when we look at Jesus and we look at the cross, we say, look at that. That's what my sin was That's what my sin did. That's what my sin cost. That's the payment. Look at that agony of the Son of God. That's what my sin cost. That's how desperate I am in need of being saved. That's how desperate I am. And you know that's true. But you know there's a flip side to that. When we look at the agony on the cross, we also say that's how much God thought we were worth saving. That agony on the cross by Jesus. That's how valuable he sees me. You were worth that pain. He'd do it over and over and over again. See, when you encounter Jesus, he picks you up from the dust because now there's something that is more catalytic in your life, more important in your life, bigger in your life that defines you. You were worth to God You were worth the suffering of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You are that valuable to him. I want you to take a look at this painting. This is a painting that's hanging in a small chapel in Israel right around the Sea of Galilee, commemorating this moment. I love how beautiful this moment is. You see the woman 
pushing through the crowd and down on her hands and knees, just reaching out to the hem of Jesus' garment. And what's so powerful about this moment is, do you realize, remember when she, the moment she touched Jesus, even the hem of his garment, she made him unclean. And you realize the moment Jesus touched the hand of that little girl, he touched a dead body, technically the moment he did that, he became ceremonially unclean. What's so powerful I love about this painting is you see as she's reaching for the fringe of his garment, do you see the garment coming out to meet her? Do you see Jesus willingly became unclean for us to make us clean? He took our shame. And if you've had an encounter with Jesus, but you're still carrying around That shame, do you know what you're saying? Jesus, your death on the cross was not powerful enough to permanently absorb my shame. And the Son of God says back to you, it was powerful enough to absorb the shame of the world. You, when you say you believe in Jesus Christ, you're saying, I believe. I am washed clean once and for all. The past is put away. I am brand new. I am born again. The scripture says this about you. It says, I am a new creation. You in Jesus Christ are a new creation. It's like he started over with you. The old is gone. The new has come. Jesus says, he says, behold, look, look at this. I make all things new. Some of you can become new today by receiving Jesus and saying, I believe in Jesus for the first time. But some of you for the first time, even though you believe in Jesus, you need to realize what that means about yourself and believe that. You're washed clean. Leave it in the dust and hear Jesus saying to you, Talitha, kumi, my child arise. Can we take a moment before the Lord together? Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Christian, would you just take a moment and if there's a part of your life you're still carrying around, can you leave it at Jesus' feet in the dust this morning? It's not who you are. It's not about what you see who you are. It's realizing how God views you and what Jesus sees when he sees you. Make that your identity today. Leave that in the dust. Leave that behind today. that's you this morning Christian just leave that behind but maybe you're here and you need to put your faith in Jesus for the first time and if that's you you want to say look I want to come to Jesus and I I want to receive what he did on the cross to wash away my sins and pray this simple prayer between you and God right there in your seat just receive that in faith say Jesus thank you for what you did to wash away my sins thank you for washing me clean thank you for taking my sins I thank you for making me new in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out our other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call us at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.